Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Inclusive Educators Podcast, a podcast coming to you by way of the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Teaching and Learning, or the CTL. I'm Dr. Quatez Scott, and I serve in the dual capacity as our inclusive pedagogy lead in the CTL, as well as a, the host of this particular podcast. So welcome on behalf of everyone who works in our series. This uh, part in our series wraps up a three-part series uh, well, with the authors of the Norton Guide to Equity-Minded Teaching. Today, I am honored to speak with Dr. Mays Ahmad. Uh, Mays is an assistant professor of biology and equity pedagogy at Connecticut College. Prior to that, she founded the Teaching and Learning Center at Pima Community College, hopefully I am pronouncing that correctly, in Tucson, Arizona, where she also taught for more than a decade in the Department for, uh, of Life and Physical Sciences. A Gardner Institute Fellow and an American Association of Colleges and Universities Senior Fellow, Mays' research focuses on stress, bio, uh, biofeedback, and self-regulation, critical feeling, cultivating resilience, and how these impact student learning and success. A nationally recognized expert on trauma-informed teaching and learning, Mays works to promote inclusive, equitable, and contextual education, all rooted in the latest research on the neurobiology of learning. So everyone, let's welcome Mays to the show. Welcome, Mays. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for that kind introduction. Thank you for the work that you do and, uh, and taking some time to speak with us here today and, and being able to share your expertise with, uh, with the folks who are going to be listening in. But let's jump into your research interest, because I personally find it very fascinating, the work that you're working on, especially now this uh, with the evolution more of neurobiology and its relation to, to the learning experience. Um, but you in your work on your website or the bio uh, page on the Connecticut College uh, webpage, it states that you are interested in reparative humanism and what it means to become a flourishing human being and to contribute to intergenerational well-being, end quote. So what is, to you, like what is uh, reparative humanism and how does this connect to your journey as an educator? Yeah, so it's, thank you for asking me. So for beginning with this question, um, this work is inspired by the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And in particular, it is inspired by the work of Pumla Gubodomedikizela, who is a South African scholar of intergenerational trauma and reparative quest. She was part of the TRC. And as I began to delve and dive into her work, I began, and she asks the, a pivotal question, what does it mean to be human in the aftermath of collective trauma? So as I dive into her work, I can't help but say, what is this, what, how does this apply to higher education? And I think within higher education, we have a lot of trauma, we have a lot of, we have historical and ongoing injustices, those injustices can really impact our humanity. And so what does it mean when we experience, and, and the, these experiences are, are not uniform, they affect different communities differently, but what does it mean to be not just a successful member of higher education, but what does it mean to be able to thrive, to thrive beyond graduation is something that I just really began to, to work on. 
So reparative humanism is a concept that presupposes few things, that there is something to repair, there's the capacity to repair, and number three, that there is the will to repair. And here we're talking about repairing what? Repairing the human, the human spirit, using humanistic principles, dignity, and health and well-being and justice for, for everyone. And so I began to, and I continue to reflect on and investigate and dream about how does this apply to higher education? And how can we, you know, trauma begets trauma. So we have this intergenerational trauma and we know that we could reverse that. So what can I do as an individual, but member of the community, the higher ed community, but also then as a, as a community to, to plant the seeds. So we have in the future, the future generations, they experience intergenerational well-being as opposed to continuing to have to deal with the trauma. All right, as I, as I sat there <laughs> listening to all of that, I'm like, uh, are there courses that are open <laughs> in Connecticut <laughs> College? Yeah, yeah. So there isn't a course, and in part because I am, I am slowly learning more and more about it. So I would recommend, you know, I mean, Pumla's work. She wrote this amazing book called "A Human Being Died That Night," and where she talks about interviewing the, 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 you know, Eugene de Kock who was the mastermind of the apartheid South Africa, but also talks about the contention between accountability and empathy, forgiveness and remorse. So I would, I would, if anything of what I said interests you, I would, I would like look into her work and, and, and maybe by then I would, I would, I would have had, you know, an outline for a course that I will invite you to co-teach with me. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Oh, everybody heard that, right? And, and the <laughs> invitation was there. So I want to hold you to that. Right, right. So with that three parts of like the, the reparative pieces of it, and we're going to put this in the context, as you stated, of higher education, particularly in today's college classrooms. So the three elements of it, one, there's something to repair, two, the capacity to repair, and then the three, the will to prepare or to repair. And I think that all of those things are really great. Let's just say we all agree, right, that there's something to repair. And we'll, we'll have to put anything specifically on it because there's so many different types of trauma that are um, ruminating like all of our college classrooms today, right? Let's say from a, just a broad perspective, what are some things that you would encourage educators to think about with that second piece, the capacity to repair? What are some things that educators must consider in their own spheres, their own classrooms, in terms of having the capacity or building their capacity to repair some of that harm in some of those spaces? Yeah, thank you. Ooh, so, you know, I would say it necessitates sitting with, working with the question of what does it mean to be a human, right? Mm -hmm. Something we often take for granted. We assume that, you know, we're all on the same page or, and to really step back and say, you know, what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to thrive? And, and so I bring in, for example, 
you know, what does it mean to uphold human dignity and to teach with dignity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, things that for a STEM class, what, what does that mean? I have so much content to cover is what most people will, will, will say. And yet those contents are truly, they are secondary when it comes to what we're really trying to do, right? To, to our, our work has implication for the future our, of our humanity, for the society and democracy and well-being. And so again, to your question, I would say, to, to imagine and to co-create, and this is not just work for the, for the instructor, it's, it's a community. So for instance, in my courses, I began to bring in this question of what does it mean to be human? What is the culture that we want to cultivate, co-create within the class? And to really read about, think about, feel about this notion of dignity. Right? What does it mean to uphold the dignity of every student, to remind them of their dignity, to um, impart on them the importance of upholding each other's dignity? Yeah, that's powerful, because as you're talking about all of that, I also think about, you know, one, our own conception, right, of, of what dignity and human dignity are um, but then there's also the critical pieces and we're going to be talking about that actually today right <laughs> with the after the term pieces and how we are reflecting on um, the, the the experiences of courses as well as you know reflecting on our own experiences as the instructors and student experiences but I, I think about that in terms of you know those hard questions that we have to ask ourselves as educators which is in what ways and how have I upheld the the dignity the human dignity of of the students inside of my courses and being able to look at that um across you know their social identities as well right so we can think about it from a a general term in terms of like students but then right like we have to ask ourselves like those critical questions and and investigate those things amongst the the differences that we typically see um from a social identity standpoint so no those are some powerful things and sometimes those are some really um, you know, humbling experiences as well, right? You know, because not everything that we reflect on feels good, especially when we, um, you know, dis- <laughs> especially as we become more aware and self-disclosed to ourselves that, hey, I was really not the greatest to students mm-hmm. who identify within these particular communities. And then there's that other self-investigative piece of it, which is asking more of like why that particularly is. Mm-hmm. No, that's um, all of this is really, really, really fascinating work that I would definitely be interested in learning more about when we're not on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Related to this, I, I began to ask the question, what harm am I inflicting on my students or perpetuating um, within my courses? And and really, yes, I, I would I would the more I learn the more I reflect, the more I step back and, and just take a take a you know a big picture look, I began to see things, concrete things that I thought, mm this could be, this is, this should not be. And I don't want to to participate in this. I mean, I am part of the system, but perpetuate this part of the system. And, and then and then um and and what does it mean to reimagine it and then to in, engender a different way, 
right? A way that does not inflict harm. Yeah. That question that you asked at the beginning in terms of like the, that you ask yourself, what harm am I perpetuating on my students? Why is that such an important, what that question, right? Because sometimes we think about, um, you know, like what went well inside of the course and, you know, like which students typically had, you know, better outcomes than other students. But the focusing on self, right? Like, what what harm am I perpetuating? Why is that such an important question for educators today to ask, or educators just in general, not just today? Yeah. Well, I mean, we are relational, and learning is relational, and teaching is relational. And so, what I do in the classroom can really impact the students, not just in my class, but beyond my class. I think many of us can remember instances in our, in our, I don't know, undergrad or maybe K through 12 or grad school or where, where we, we walked away from an experience wounded or uplifted, elevated. Mm-hmm. And I want, um, I guess it's a, it's an ethical, moral, um, quest for me that I want my students to walk away um, elevated and uplifted and 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 challenged and transformed even and not wounded. Walking hmm. away from classes or courses either wounded or uplifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are some of the things that I, you know, I had a faculty member when I was finishing my doctorate, uh, who stated that he he hated putting things in in terms of like these categorical experiences uh, or these dichotomous experiences, right? So either I was wounded or I was uplifted by it. You know, either it's this or he he just kind of like hated the this or that. Um, sometimes like that's just the reality of it. I mean, uh, I, I very rarely do I see students you know, when you ask them about an experience with something, and do they say you know it was they would typically give you like, this was my experience. <laughs> oh, this person was a great faculty member. Mm-hmm. Of course, we can always think about some of the things that folks can do better, but mm-hmm. overall folks are typically able to say, you know, whether or not I would take that class again, or I would mm-hmm. take a class that was taught by this individual again, right? So mm-hmm. being able to kind of think about those things. So yeah, you know, walking away from classes, either wounded or uplifted is certainly a powerful piece to keep in mind. And, and surely it is a continuum. I am, I am, you know, I do wonder if sometimes a student will have, you know, the positive and the negative experience. But I, but it is my hope that that if there is a wounding moment, that I'm able to catch it, that I'm able to to repair it, right? Mm-hmm. That that, and so, yeah, it's not a dichotomy. I had this and that and the other. But the overall, the, the student walks away um, feeling elevated. And notice, I also said challenge. This is not mm-hmm. about, you know, it's a, it's a Montessori playground. No, I do want to challenge my students. And I want them to see that they are capable of that challenge. So offer the support and also, also challenge. Yeah. yeah. And with that, you know, um, it's not, well, not that last piece, but um, what you stated before, it isn't, you know, it isn't just like, well, either you were great or you weren't, you know, the, the whole continuum piece of it, because it goes back to what you stated before, the the relationships and what you all talk about inside of the book as well, 
is that relationships are essentially like the most important part of the, the teaching and learning process. And that's the same thing too. Like I, I'm not gonna sit here and say that I have not said or done anything in interactions with students, whether or not it's been kind of informal or in the formal learning space that was not harmful. What I have acknowledged though, is that depending on my relationship to those students or the students has a lot to do with, um, you know, how it's received as well as how I can be forgiven by, by my students as well, or the learners inside of that space. Um, I think I've used this example before, but yeah, I just remember one time, I forget what the actual situation was, but it's back at a former institution and um, I made a comment and really wasn't thinking about the social identity piece of it as it related to, now I know that the students were, um, were of Latino heritage. So I made this comment, um, but I really wasn't thinking about the, their social identities in the context of the comment. So that student said, well, Quartez, did you, like, did you think about like what this means? Like with also like my, uh, with my race <laughs> on top of that? And I had not thought about that. And I say like, you know what, like you're, you're exactly correct. Like, I'm so sorry, I did not, I did not think about that. And she said, that's okay. Like, like, I know you, I know you didn't mean any harm by it. And that piece was, was so great to me. Not even just the, I know you, and I know you didn't mean anything by that, but even the fact that she could in that moment, right mm -hmm. after it just happened, correct me on that and bring that to my attention was also something that let me know that's where our relationship was. Yeah. Felt comfortable at least even bringing that up to me. Yeah. So yeah, you know, like just being able to be in spaces where folks can see you beyond uh, Quartez or whatever your name is, like as the educator to seeing yeah. the human piece of you as well. That's, that's great. What a, what a gift, um, both for the student to give you, but also for, for your relationship to give to the students, to be able to um, express, to be able to hold the space for another human being to, to just kind of correct, you know, correct the, and to, to, to go deeper into, mm. into, yeah, I recently, and this past semester, I had a student who had me in another class, took me in this, this class and was so excited because she had such a great experience in the class. And this other class, the second class she took with me is more difficult. It's challenging as students, you know, not happy about, about the, the, the amount of work we do. And um, what happened, there was a lab report that they needed to submit and the students submitted and she had worked with me on the lab report and some of the things. And so, so she did not get the grade that she had expected. And, and she came into my office and she was very, I could tell, I mean, she was very upset. And she said, um, I don't understand. We went over the, the answers and I don't know why I'm getting this wrong. And then she said, you know, I decided I'm so upset. And I decided, I know Dr. Imad, let me just give her some grace. Let me go and talk with her. And in fact, you know, I was so touched by that. The maturity, the courage, the, I was really touched. And I said, you know, thank you. I thanked her and I said, give me some time to re-look at my notes, look at the, and I had made a mistake in the addition, right? 
so so it was it was I'm so grateful for that yeah yeah that's awesome yeah being able to even look at it that way is also really important as well um because those are some of the things that we spoke about over this past week um a group of folks of us were talking about pedagogical partnerships and it's really so important for us to be in partnership or relationship with with our with our learners inside of the space because that's one of the reasons why I tend to use learners is because I'm also learning too Mm -hmm. right like I'm the teacher inside of that space but I'm also learning how to teach how to connect how to build relationships throughout that entire process as well so yeah all those things are really great all right, let's shift gears a little bit before we jump into the text and your section on after the term, because this is more personal for me, but I would like some of our instructors to also just utilize our services and resources. But, you know, you previously were the founder of the Teaching and Learning Center at Pima Community College. Can you talk about the nature of the work of, you know, centers for teaching and learning or teaching and learning centers, however people want to describe their centers? But talk about the importance of that and why it's so important for, this is a leading question, but why it's so important <laughs> for instructors to, to, to utilize uh, these services. Yeah, so educational um, developer Torgny Raksa, who's a, in, um, a Swedish educational developer, um, wrote an article few years ago talking about um, the imperative to have evidence-based teaching. And in the article, he uses this analogy that when I go to the doctor, I expect that the doctor is going to treat me according to the recent evidence and that they follow the evidence and they follow the data and the science. And he says that for the most part, when I go to a classroom and I am a student, I can't always expect that that's going to be the case. That is, and it should be, that, you know, learning is complex. It doesn't just happen magically with the snap of a finger. We just talked about these things are relational and relationships are messy. And, you know, the 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 evidence base to what makes effective teaching, what facilitates learning, brings in the psychology, the cognitive science, the neuroscience, and human development. And so teaching and learning centers or center for teaching and learning, they are about, you know, how can we help bring the best in the teacher, in the instructor, so they could bring up the best in the students, right? It is really about what are the evidence that are gonna facilitate, um, enhance the learning for the students and the experience for everyone. So related to the the, um, Teaching and Learning Center at Pima, I was an adjunct faculty at Pima and I got my student evaluation And one of the student evaluations said something like, she's really nice, she's very passionate, she doesn't know how to teach. And the person said um, something like, send her to conferences, or or (laughs) it was very constructive. Mm -hmm. And after I got over the initial shock of, you know, someone writing that, and it was a kind, it was kind, it was very... Um, I went and I said, well, 
you know, where can I learn how to teach on the, on, on, on this campus or on other campus? So I, I asked for the Teaching and Learning Center. And I knew about teaching and learning centers because prior to the, or, or my undergrad was at the University of Michigan Dearborn and the University of Michigan has a history of centers for teaching and learning. So I knew, and there was no teaching and learning center. There's faculty resource center where you make copies and you, and um, I began to dream and really start thinking about what would it take to, to have a teaching and learning center at the college. And it probably took me, then I became full-time faculty and probably took me close to seven years. I started gathering colleagues that wanted the same thing. And in pockets, I want to say that throughout the college, there were pockets where teaching and learning, workshops, professional development were happening, but we didn't have a centralized center. And so I um, I reached out to, uh, to a few colleagues and I said, I want to start a journal club called, and I want to call it um, uh, teaching matters, or or I, I don't even remember, but something about the scholarship of teaching and learning and what is evidence based. And so there were like a group of six or, or or seven of us that would meet every Friday and talk about an article. And on the side, I'm just collecting data, doing the research, writing a proposal for a teaching and learning center, which was eventually approved by the, you know, the administrators, they were on board, the chancellor, and then eventually the board. Yeah. Awesome. And then, so with that, you know, one of the things I took away from that, as you were stating, it was, it seems like that, that, uh, that feedback using the reparative pieces of it, like that language. (laughs) So, right. So the student recognizing that there was something to repair and that there was Mm -hmm. the capacity to repair for that. Mm -hmm. Right. But also Mm -hmm delivering that in a, in a really encouraging way, right? And then you also having the will to be able to do that as well. So, and I think that's so important as well because, you know, I received my student evaluations back from the class that I just taught this past semester. Over, overall, there were, it was really positive. Um, but there was also like one student who was noting that it seemed like kind of after spring break, they were like, Dr. Scott, it seemed like he got busy. or. <laughs> Or that there was something like maybe he was overwhelmed with like, because they also knew that I was adjuncting there, but I worked full time at another institute. Mm-hmm. And as I'm like reading the feedback, all I could think was, man, how did he know? Or how did they, like, how did they know that I was like so busy? But sometimes, so what it signaled to me is that students can also feel it too, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, as much as like we could be doing our best, uh, students yeah. also sense that we could be overwhelmed by some things as well. And it yeah. also helped me to um, understand or at least start to you know, consider maybe some of the things that like I'm asking students to do. If it seems overwhelming to me at that moment, then think about how overwhelming it may be to them <laughs> like also inside yeah. of those spaces as well. So, but yeah, uh, we, we certainly encourage and going back to what you stated, yeah, you know, just having folks coming to the centers, not because there's any uh, thought that folks like cannot teach, um, but also asking those questions, is there anything else that can be done 
to elevate one's approach to teaching as well as the learning outcomes and experiences with our students. Because one thing that Dr. Allison uh, Cooksathy, I think that's how you, uh, I think that's mm-hmm. her last name. One of the things that she was one of the folks that uh, was leading this, uh, this workshop over the last few days, one of the things that she was stating was that pedagogical partnerships and, and essentially teaching in general, when we're talking about the reflective pieces of it, it's not about getting folks to just consider the things that they need to change. It's about getting educators to be curious about the ways in which they're teaching, as well as reaching the learners inside of that space. And I thought that that was yeah. a really powerful way of being able to frame that. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in, in spaces like that, I learned so much from other faculty. They come in and they say, I'm doing this and I, and this is and faculty who are start, just starting faculty or senior to me. It's just really it's 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 a place of co-creation yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure all right well let's shift gears and let's get to uh the book the the norton guide to equity minded teaching in which you were one of the four co-authors of of the of the text how did you become part of this group of authors because from what i've heard um you had you brian and um and isis yeah. were the original three and then flower was added to it but how yeah. did you yeah how did you become part of this group and then um with what you contributed why did you what did you contribute specifically and why did you feel like these aspects were so uh critical to teaching and learning in higher education today yeah yeah um so um dr arce vega isis approached me she um she Send me a message, and then we had a phone call. And I highly respect her work. I look up to her as a leader, as a human being, as someone who just thinks and lives and dreams about equity. And um, my initial reaction was I was so excited. And then I thought, wait, do I have anything to contribute? And then I thought, will I be able to? And um, and then she mentioned that. She had um, also either she had or was going to approach um, Brian, Dr. Deuce Berry, and I thought, oh, I can't say no now. I have a chance to work with two people that I love and respect so much. So that's how it happened. And then very early on, um, we wanted, and again, it was like, you know, um, ECs is just very forward thinking, um, thinking about online and we didn't want online to be an added on we want it to be integral and so um you know flower was uh was a was an obvious obvious um invitation to be added to to the team yeah yeah awesome so and then your specific so as well you know reached out to all of you all as co-authors um so a lot of your uh focus was on the last section of the book section three which is after the term, am I correct with that? Yeah, so we actually worked on the book all throughout together. Mm-hmm. And, and and we had more focus. You know, you focus on this, you focus on. So I, you know, I worked. Uh, so the focus, the research was on the the after the term. So section three and also the, the, the conclusion. Yeah. So with that, um, one of the things clearly that we were just talking about <laughs> that are really uh, integral to kind of after the term and being able to reflect on the courses are student evaluations. 
So, or, you know, as you all talk about inside of the book, student evaluations of teaching or sets. So mm-hmm. they're one of the primary ways that instructors uh, or their effectiveness is essentially assessed in, in, in terms of higher education. What advice would you offer instructors after the term in working their way through assessing um, their own feedback, so the feedback that they receive? So are there items that they should pay particular attention to more than others? Because, and I'll just use myself as an example, not myself as an example, but just some of, in some of the work that I come across like we hear faculty talk about, you know, whatever, t- uh, it was a TQIs or FCQs and whatever, you know, acronyms that folks uh, use in terms of being able to assess teaching and learning. I always hear so many of them say, you know, well, you got to take it with like a grain of salt. But if it's like really positive, then it's just like, oh, that was like really awesome, right? So, so what are some things that folks should, you know, pay particular attention to and maybe you know, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say take things with like a grain of salt or whatever, but, you know, what are the primary things that instructors should be worried or focused on as it relates to their feedback? Yeah, so I would say um, go into it. And I actually, like, I have almost like a ritual before I open the files. I sit down and I remind myself where my heart is and why it matters, this work matters and what I, what I, and, and I remind myself that I tried, right? I also remind myself that, you know, there were, there are things I could improve. So I really like walk my, myself through that in a way to prepare myself to read some, some comments that are not going to be, not going to be kind, right? I also remind myself that students are not trained to write sets. And so sometimes they're going to write either like emotionally positive or negative. And I go into them looking for the truth. And what that means is when I come across a really positive feedback. Dr. Mason was the best instructor, this and that, most organized, always giving us feedback on time. I think, no, I didn't, right? And I think, all right, yeah, okay. So this person, I'm their favorite person in the world. What was it? You know, I'm trying to find what is the truth within this really exaggerated comment that that I I wanna capitalize on? Right. On the other hand, I'm going to come across comments every semester, every term that when you first read them, when I first read them, there is like you feed it in the pit of your stomach, like really like, ouch. I walk away from them. I walk away. And then I focus on what is the student trying to tell me if they were face to face with me? How would they give me that message? They wouldn't give it to me the same way they wrote it. You know, she's, she's, you know, she was, uh, it's so, she's so embarrassing. She didn't know anything about this topic. It's like very, right. And I also pay attention to what is emerging, what is coming up for me, the shame, the anger, the guilt, the, and I don't push it away. I don't want anyone to tell me, don't worry about this. I don't want anyone to, 
No, I want to process it. Why am I feeling the shame? And why am I feeling scared or sad or right? And I usually, again, it's like I have a, like a method, a ritual. A, I usually am able to find some truth in those tough, right, comments. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when they're really tough that I can't process them, I have someone from the Teaching and Learning Center, from the Center for Teaching and Learning, that, you know, I say, you know, can we talk about this? And someone I trust, they, 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 they do this often with other instructors. And, you know, we have a conversation about them. They're really important because with all the messiness of sets and the biases, and they are, they are data that tell us how the student perceived the class, perceived the instructor, right? Some of them, I say, okay, I can't really, you know, this, this student, you know, I had a, I had a one that said something like, um, you know, I, I was only able to make class once a week. What? We met three, three times a week. I, I figured out who the student and, you know, I couldn't do my homework. I was doing this. I was doing, so the student actually gave me a lot of information about how little they put into the course. And then proceeded to say how challenging the course was. And, and so sometimes you, you think, well, there's not much I could do in this case. And sometimes it's painful and I, sh I, this is what I could, it's about moving forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, and that's really interesting that you state that you go to the center for teaching and learning also um with like your feedback that's one thing i don't know i won't speak for everybody inside of our center but that's one thing that i've not necessarily heard um with some of our faculty members but certainly would be encouraged right um i've had consultations with instructors about things that they've learned um but not necessarily anyone who kind of you know like wanted to you know go through um that feedback and i think that's important too because you're also there is research actually um because we're trying to incorporate more consultations that are related to uh, to feedback um, as a neutral party, uh, which yeah, there, are, yeah. there are articles that do show that that's actually really helpful to instructors being able to not just hear it from the from the students or the learners or maybe um, their department chair or or someone else in the inside of the area, but a neutral party, right? Yeah. So being able yeah, to yeah. You know, talk about that, yeah. So, I mean, I actually, when I, was, when I was at Pima, I remember getting an evaluation and I couldn't get over it. I was just really, and I, I couldn't process it. I was really stuck in the shame. And I remember going to someone who is at a CTL, but not at Pima. We didn't have this teaching and learning center at that time. But a friend of mine in the academy, and I reached out to them, and and they said they they helped me, um, kind of like they helped reground me, and offered to read them for me. And I said yes, please read them for me. So, and and that's how I began to see that sometimes when I get really stuck, I need someone else to help me process, co-regulate, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I remember the person said, okay. 
So you need to like remove the fluff, you know, the, the good fluff, the bad fluff, and just, you know, let's see. And we had almost, we had a, I remember we had a phone conversation. This is an experienced CTL person. And it was, it became like an interview. And the interview was very much forward looking. How can I, you know, what is the truth in this? And how do I want to address it? And what I can imagine for the next evaluation going to be. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I also like that you stated that you have like a ritual that you go into before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because as I'm thinking about it, you know, I'm in, I'm in this huge space now. Um, so part of my my minor in my doctoral program was um, educational psychology. So I took this really great course on self and identity. So there are a lot of self-concepts now that I try to incorporate in the work that I do. So of course, with like that, you know, the centering of oneself certainly can help one become more aware of those feelings that are emerging as they, because it helps kind of keep you accountable, right? Going back to the whole purpose of this is not for me to, you know, take offense to like any of this stuff. It's for me to identify and learn from the learners inside of that space, you know, like the things from their perspectives that went well. And, mm -hmm. I, and there were two words that you stated in terms of like having that ritual that I think are also really important as well. I tried, right? Like not taking it personal, but it was one of those things where, okay, well, this is something that I genuinely tried. I thought that this would be great. Whether or not that was something that you instituted as the instructor, or even if it was something that we as a course decided to do, thinking about it from a partnership perspective. But if it just didn't go well, you know, I tried, we tried, it just did not yeah. go well, right? So how can I use this? Um, you know, moving forward to to enhance that the, the learning experience. Mm -hmm. So um, thinking about it from that then, okay, so let's go with, you know, all of that. How can instructors across any level, because, you know, student evaluations or sets are not the only ways that we can gather feedback from learners prior to the end of the term in terms of what went well and what did not. Um, but are there other ways that instructors can coordinate, you know, feedback that goes beyond those course evaluations? And are there any questions that instructors should seek to learn or ask their uh, their students inside of those spaces? So, yes, of course, I think it's important to let the student know what the purpose of the feedback is, what you're going to do with it, why you're seeking it. So for me, I talk about learning is social and emotional. Learning is relational. Learning is iterative. Teaching is also iterative. So I'm going to try things. Maybe it's not going to sit well with you. When I ask you for feedback, it's because I want to improve not just as an instructor, but as a co-learner and for the future, for, for you and your future future students. So there are, and depending on what you're seeking feedback for, you tried a new assignment, you want feedback, you have them do group work, you want feedback. For me, one of the things that are so important for me, and I seek feedback early on in the semester, um, is I send a student a one item survey. It's anonymous. And I ask them, is there anything I am doing or not doing that's making you or a classmate feel excluded? Mm -hmm. And I tell them why this is important and how it's, it's you know, I'm very genuine about seeking that feedback. 
And I do it early on, maybe a, a month into the semester, because if it's it's something I could shift, I could shift right away. You know, if it's like I'm using specific, um, you know, one time I just kept saying, you guys, you guys, and that didn't sit well with one of the students. And the student, I don't know who they are, but a student wrote, well, we're not all guys. And I came back and I said, thank you. And now I, you know, remind people or ask people to remind me if I use language that feels excluding. Mm-hmm. You know, there are different, different ways to, to, but I think continuous feedback and also continuity or some kind of closing the, the loop. So I take the feedback, I go back to the students and I say, so thank you. I got the feedback. Let me explain why I do X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. that I don't intend to change. Let me explain why. And then I heard you when you said, I do, you know, the following and how, thank you for telling me. And, you know, I'm going to shift. It matters to the student. They see that they are. They are partners, not just in the learning, in the but in creating the culture. Yeah, yeah, that's also that's also really important because, and you all talk about this inside of the inside of the book. So, you know, being transparent with learners inside of the space, and and not just you know being transparent in what they're doing and the details of what they're doing, right? The specifics, but also the why. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right? Like students are also inquisitive and they want to know what the relevance of what it is that they're doing and how it ties to the larger picture, right? So yeah, that's also really important. And I've just had a consultation with one of our faculty members a couple of weeks ago, just talking about that as well. Um, and the example that I gave was, um, so the example that they gave was that there was uh, students who were uncomfortable with them walking around the, um, the classroom. Hmm. And the classroom, I think, had um, like 70 some odd students or something. So students just felt like a little uneasy about that. And uh, my perspective, right, is thinking about the the power dynamics. I always just uh, automatically go to that in terms of like what someone's discomfort may be rooted in. Because, of course, you know, when somebody's walking around the class from a student perspective, we think about it as, Oh, are they checking to see if I'm online or if I'm like on my phone or doing like something else? So I just thought about it from that. I said, that would be the same thing, right? We were sitting inside of a coffee shop on campus. I said, if a police officer just walked in, I might feel differently with them just standing over there um, by the register. But if that officer started pacing around like where I was, right? (laughs) Like then I'm honest, as a black man, I'm I'm then thinking like, why do they keep coming? You know, like over here, right? So um, but of course, I don't expect that officer inside of that space to announce to everybody in the coffee shop, hey, just want to let you all know <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm walking around just because I want to get a feel for the room. Hmm. But I do think as educators, for us, letting them see our perspective with that. So mm-hmm. I know for me, I just feel really uncomfortable sitting at the front of the room and feeling like I'm talking to you or speaking at you instead of being in community with you. So it really helps me to kind of move around and get a feel for the room. Cause one, it helps disarm them from that, but it also lets them know that this is like, this is behavior that's likely to happen, right? So um, one thing that they can sit, one thing that they may be able to do is to talk about how things made them feel from their own respective perspectives, 
But if you make it clear to them, they can all be on the same page. But this is the reason why the instructor stated that they're doing what they're doing. So I appreciate you stating that that's also what you mm-hmm. do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just and I also too like your perspectives. Like so, being able to sit back and think about the the course experience and what all took place. Of course, it's like you know the 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 the, the graph that you all show. Right, you're showing these arrows. So you have the before the term begins to uh, during the term to after, which then goes into like that next term, right? So what are some things, what are some things that you encourage instructors to keep in mind in terms of like after the term, and I've had the opportunity to reflect on this, how do I use this now to prepare for that next term? Yeah, so, you know, I go very like practically. What is one thing I want to continue to do? one thing I want to start doing, one thing I want to stop doing. And under the category of, of um, content and logistics, and then under the, co- the category of relational and emotions, right? And sometimes I don't have an answer for every single one of them, but I really focus on one thing. That way I don't overwhelm myself. I have to revise everything. I have to do everything because it's it's iterative, you know? And sometimes those little tweaks that you do in the language, in the way you like you walk in, you you um you know, like one student one time gave me feedback that on the day of the exam I walk in and I'm not smiling. And I was like, no, I I smile all the time. It turns out on the day of the exam I don't smile. They pick that up, and it's like, oh, is the exam extra difficult? Is she mad? Sometimes they, and so then. You know, that one thing I want to change. Yeah. And I do it once I, I don't wait until two weeks before the semester to start thinking about these things because my memory is going to fail me, truthfully. I try to like, once I process, once I walked away, I come back. And sometimes on just a posted note, I just put these things. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> Those are the subtle things that we don't typically think about. Um Right, because we're thinking we're walking inside of the room, right? But then you have to think about how we're being perceived with mm-hmm. every single step that we take, you know, walking inside of that room. And even how that shows up in online spaces as well. Um, how yeah. class how courses get started. Um, I pay I pay particular attention to that. Like I'm yeah. a huge stickler for when people just dive into the course content. So even now, um, in the classes that I teach online. I always try to start off with like some type of either meditative practice or going through, like, if I know that today's topic is going to be talking about, you know, equity or like self-awareness, we'll just use that as an example. If we're going to be largely talking about self-awareness, typically what I like to do is to start off with some type of activity, even if it's in an online space, even if it's in an asynchronous space to kind of get, you know, the folks inside of the room to start thinking about, you know, different concepts terms or practices or really kind of just centering like how we think about things like that instead mm-hmm. of just like diving straight in and just like talking about it um mm-hmm. right because honestly it kind of helps disarm me too for me like if i, I know whatever i typically present i start off like really fast like speaking yeah. wise yeah but as i go i typically slow down so some of those things are also for me as well. If I know I'm starting off with this, it helps me to get kind of some of the fast paced pieces out of the way. And mm-hmm. then I can slow down a little bit more. 
and last thing I want to talk to you about, uh, we talked a little bit about it starting off with, you know, the the uh, the reparative pieces of it, but just trauma-informed pedagogy as well. Um, can you just, before we get out of here, can you talk about what trauma-informed pedagogy is and why is it important for educators to consider applying this work in their teaching methods? Yeah, so it's it's really... <clears throat> It's a framework that is rooted in, in anti-oppressive frameworks, right? It's a framework that me that that aspires to liberate and transform. And it, it's it's simply put, it is recognizing that the students that come to us come to us with experiences and historical contexts that 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 impact the way they show up, engage, interact. And that there is a lot of trauma. In fact, if you just look at the data, you know, the data on mental health, the data on trauma, the data on adversity, you know, we know that a lot of the students coming to our institutions have had experiences with psychological trauma. And so knowing that and knowing how trauma impacts how we show up for ourselves, for others, what can I do in my courses to, I can't take away the trauma, right? But I can cultivate the space where students feel um, safe and connected, supported and empowered. So they could dare to learn, to thrive, to take risk, to engage. And it's gonna be context dependent, right? It necessitates that I know the students, that I know what matters to them, that I know what is what does it mean to, you know, a sense of safety. Um, and so it's 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 nothing. Um, this trauma informed, you know, it's big and fancy and so on, but it's 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 relational. Trauma is relational, and healing is also relational. So if someone is just you know, just getting to know about what trauma-informed education is, you know, I say, you know, try, start by familiarizing yourself with what trauma is and how it impacts us and try to notice in yourself. And then I think from there, we can, you know, that empathy that we could see, hmm, I see what's going on with the students. I wonder what's going on in the background and, you know, how can I, show up for them? How can I let them know that I see them, that they matter, that I'm going to help them, that I'm walking this journey with them? And it's, again, it's iterative. It's, you know, baby steps with heart. Yeah. Awesome. Well, in respecting your time, the last thing that I'll ask you is if, if you have any final thoughts or words of advice that you would like to share with our listeners just generally about equity-minded or even trauma-informed, you know, teaching today. Any final thoughts that you would like to share? Well, I will end with the words of Bell Hooks. And um, Bell Hooks invites us to make the classroom or the Zoom room into a place of liberating mutuality. You know, our those spaces are not about giving students information. Right now we're, you know, students can get information anywhere, everywhere. It's really about the, the cultivating the space where we can co-learn, co-liberate and grow together. 
And I always think, how has this course and this experience changed me? Um, and so, and and so, I would say that. And I would also say that we have we have um, positionality. And what can I do to use my position, to use my the power, to use my to advocate for change? to advocate for change at the department level. at the So there are things I could do individually and there are questions I can ask and pushes I do to, to start to agitate the system at the department level, at the institutional level. Those are really important, right? People often talk about the system, the system, we are the system. And I could do things to, at the very least, agitate enough. So maybe in five years and in 10 years, and then eventually the system is, is, is equitable, is more humane, is beautiful, upholds the dignity of, of everybody. Dr. Mays Ahmad, thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, thank this, you, Dr. Scott. This was very inspiring to me. Um, I hope, I really hope this is not our last conversation. One, it's not, it's not going to be. About to say, you started off by saying that I could, you know, assist with, <laughs> with, with one of those projects. Yeah, so I'm going to hold you, I'm going to hold you to that. We put it in the universe, it's going to happen. Oh, yes. for sure. Yes. No, thank you so much um, for, for giving us your time uh, today, your expertise. Um, and thank you so much for the work that you do, right? Because what you offer through the text would not be possible without the work that you actually do. So thank you so much for being um, as equitable as an instructor, as trauma-informed as you can be, as re reparative as you can be from mm -hmm. a humanistic standpoint. So thank, thank you, you so all much. very much. Yeah.